Many ancient castles can lay claim to a fair share of ghosts, but few can hold a candle to Lep Castle, long known as the most haunted castle in Ireland. This is Mark Lyon. Welcome to the Other Realm. Throughout my life, I have collected true accounts left to us by those who have inadvertently crossed the invisible threshold from our world into the realm of the supernatural and returned to tell the tale. These are their stories. When the independent-minded, rebellious, and highly talented 22-year-old Mildred Henrietta Gordon Dill, known as Millie to her friends, married the 35-year-old Jonathan Charles Darby on the 7th of November, 1889, and moved into Lep Castle near Roscray in County Offaly, Ireland, she had every reason to believe that she could look forward to a delightfully bucolic happily ever after. Millie's joy, however, was to be short-lived. Jonathan Darby was an arrogant autocrat with a violent temper, remembered locally for upsetting his wife by often intentionally tracking mud and muck from the stables onto her clean floors. It was only a matter of time before the marriage began to founder, and though they were to successfully raise four children, their first son dying in early infancy, their union consisted of a never-ending battle of wills. Particularly vexing to Jonathan was Millie's writing career, and the most upsetting to Jonathan of all her literary works was the story a House of Horrors, published in 1898 in the London magazine Belgravia, and which was later republished in a longer and more detailed form, along with an introduction attesting to the truthfulness of the account, in the December 1908 issue of the Occult Review. Although written under a pseudonym and clothed in the guise of a fictional narrative, it was obvious to those in the know that Millie's story was an alarmingly full and candid account of the ghostly goings-on at Lep Castle. When Jonathan became aware of the story, he was furious, and it is said that he never forgave Millie for writing and publishing it. He always claimed that the ghost stories, which had been told for centuries about his much-loved home, were sheer nonsense, and he had absolutely forbidden Millie from speaking of them. The only spirits in this house, he would often state, in a voice which brooked no dissension, are in the cellars. But, despite Jonathan's protestations, the ghosts and the incidents recounted in the House of Horrors were real. Others had attested to ghostly encounters that left for ages and Millie herself had twice come face to face with the most terrifying of all the castle's supernatural entities, what she called it and the thing, 
and which others have termed the elemental. I was standing in the gallery looking down at the main floor when I felt somebody put a hand on my shoulder, she was to recall. The thing was about the size of a sheep, thin, gaunt, shadowy. Its face was human, or to be more accurate, inhuman. Its lust in its eyes, which seemed half decomposed in black cavities, stared into mine. The horrible smell, one hundred times intensified, came up into my face, giving me a deadly nausea. It was the smell of a decomposing corpse. She was to later describe a final encounter with it in a letter to a friend by the name of Sidney Carroll. On the 25th November, 1915, she disclosed two of our servants, knowing the master would be late and that I was driving that afternoon, had invited friends, two soldiers from the barracks at Burr. They had come rather late, and my husband came home early, so the visitors had to be kept out of his sight in the lower regions of one of the wings, and were unable to be shown the center tower, the very lofty hall. At 7.15, my husband and I went up to dress for dinner, my room in the extremity of the house from the kitchens, his dressing room next door to me. Whilst dressing, I was startled by a loud yell of terror-stricken male and female voices coming apparently from the hall and ran out to see the cause. My husband was out ahead of me at his heels. I passed through the corridor of the wing and on to the gallery. On the gallery, leaning with hands resting on its rail, I saw the thing, the elemental, and smelt it only too well. At the same moment, my husband pulled up sharply about ten feet from the thing, and half turning, let fly a volley of abuse at me, ending up dressing up a thing like that to try to make a fool of me. And now you'll say I've seen something, and I have not seen anything, and there is nothing to see or ever was. This last speech, without a pause, begun waving one hand at the thing, ended up by stalking back to his dressing room, still abusing me for trying to give him a fright. As he was speaking, the elemental grew fainter and fainter in its outlines until it disappeared. He never made any inquiry as to the yell that called us both out, and from that day to this, has not mentioned the incident to me. I heard from our servants that when we went to dress for dinner, they had brought their friends just to show them the hall, when all four had suddenly seen and smelt the elemental looking down at them from the gallery. They all got such a turn, they couldn't help letting out a ball, then fled to servants' quarters, where all four were very sick. The next day, the two maids presented Millie with letters claiming it was necessary for them to immediately pay visits to their homes. They never returned to let. Following the publication of The House of Horror in the Occult Review, three letters from former house guests 
Attesting to their first-hand encounters with supernatural entities during their stays at the castle were sent to Millie, who then forwarded them on to the occult review. You have asked me to write down just what happened last night when you, with my brother and myself, had just come in from listening to the dogs making a tremendous barking and howling at half-past eleven, wrote one house-guest. When we came into the big hall, I had my arm round your waist, and it was a sudden start that you gave made me look at your face. I saw your eyes fixed upon something above our heads, and the next minute my own eyes were filled with the sight of a thing in the gallery looking down at us. There was plenty of light from the lamps in the hall and the one above on the wall at the corner of the gallery for every one of us to see quite plainly the grey-coloured figure about the height of a small grown-up person looking down at us. I wish I thought I could ever forget the sight of that grey figure with dark spots like holes in its head instead of eyes, standing with grey arms folded on the gallery railing looking down at us. It was the cry I gave in my horror made my brother look up too, and without waiting a second you remember he said, Stand here, you two and I will run round and upstairs to the gallery to see who that choker is. I'll teach him to dress up like that to try and give you ladies a fright. You and I just stood where we were, and neither of us said a word. Our eyes were fixed on the thing. At least I know mine were and never shifted. I heard the rushing footsteps of my brother as he ran upstairs and the opening of the gallery door. Then, just as he put a foot on the gallery, the thing that he saw there, that we were watching, suddenly faded out of sight. The thing did not move, only became less and less visible until it vanished. My brother searched the gallery for any trace or sign of the figure we all three had seen, but found nothing. I only wish you would come away with us today. I do not like leaving you in this weird place where I personally could not summon courage to remain another night. Another former house guest wrote of his encounter with the castle's red lady. I have been asked to commit to paper the details of an occurrence that took place whilst I was on my first visit to Lep, the home of my old friend Jonathan Darby. I gladly do this because although there is nothing very remarkable in the facts when viewed by themselves, nothing of a similar or kindred nature has ever been experienced by me before. Also, at the actual time, I was deeply impressed. I arrived at Lep on the morning of the 20th of October, perfectly sound and healthy in mind and body, certainly not a person accustomed to dream dreams or to start and shudder at a shadow. The days were spent in long tramps with dogs and gun after wild pheasants, snipe, and rabbits and the evening in singing, reading, and yarning, with games of nap or bridge, 
but beyond a casual remark or two i overheard made to my hostess about the castle being haunted and with a description of three apparitions that a neighbor said he had seen in the dining-room nothing occurred at the time to cause me to think or fancy that ghostly visitors were to be expected in my room at any rate on the thirty-first of october i went to my bedroom about eleven p m during the night the time was twelve forty five a m as i subsequently saw by my watch i felt that i was awakened by somebody in my room it was pitch dark and at first i could see nothing i was wide awake with an extraordinary cold feeling at my heart that rapidly increased in intensity almost immediately i felt as much as saw that there was a tall figure in the middle of the room my first impression was that darby himself was there as no other member of the household would correspond to the height what is it i asked there was no answer but now i could see dimly at first and then with increasing distinctness that the tall figure was closed from head to foot in red and with its right hand raised menacingly in the air to my utter astonishment i could see that the light which illuminated the figure was from within having very much the effect of the dark lantern used in a photographer's room as the figure advanced towards me the light increased and i could see distinctly that the form was that of a very tall woman holding some sort of weapon knife or dagger in her hand what is it i said again adding who is it and then hurriedly struck a match and lit my candle as the flame of the match and candle illuminated the room i looked all round the room was empty i jumped out of bed and carefully examined the curtains to see if by any chance the light from the window could have caused the effect above described or if i could find any possible explanation i put out the candle and getting into bed again carefully looked to see if in the dark i could account for what i had seen no the night was too black and the curtains too closely drawn for any glimmering from without to filter in not satisfied i relit the candle and made a systematic search round the room i found everything in order and my door locked exactly as i had left it when going to bed from the moment that i noticed the light emanated from the figure i was convinced that what i saw was supernatural convinced too against my will for up to this i had been one of the greatest unbelievers in the possibility of apparitions or spirits being seen i can't say i felt exactly frightened but more solemnly impressed my preconceived opinions were utterly swept away and i knew i had been face to face with something beyond my power to explain away i went back to bed again but decided that i must not fall asleep thinking of the scarlet woman or else i should be sure to dream of her and i knew that what i had seen was not in a dream 
I know that I was not dreaming, that I saw real unreality, and that I was not the victim of a practical joke. Apparitions are not a subject of jest at Left Castle, either with host or guest. A third houseguest wrote, You want me to tell you exactly what occurred the first night I spent with you all at Lep last November. I went up to my room, which was in the priest's house, and I like my quarters very much. The great big beam across the ceiling was so old-fashioned and keeping with the rest of the castle, as were the well-worn uncarpeted stairs outside leading down to the little hall and up to the top story. Well, I went to bed quite happily, no thought of ghosts or any such things in my head, and soon was fast asleep. The next day, when I came down to breakfast, you asked me, had I slept well? And you may remember I told you I had been a little disturbed and wakeful. When we were alone after breakfast, you asked me to tell you candidly what had given me a bad night, and I told you just what I now put down. You know that I was a perfect stranger to Lep and all its stories. Also, I was quite ignorant as to the various apparitions other people had seen within its walls. As for expecting to see a spook myself, as one of those who pride themselves upon being strong, athletic, well-trained, and in perfect health without the knowledge of what nerves meant, I should have laughed at anyone even suggesting I could see a ghost. Well, that first night, I went to bed and to sleep at once, to be awakened later by a curious feeling of oppression, just as if some very heavy body was on my bed, nearly pushing me out. Into my mind came the idea that one of the dogs had got into my room, and I put out my hand to feel over the bedclothes. But beyond a sensation as if I had plunged my hand into ice-cold water, there was nothing. As the weight on my bed did not move, I resolved to get out and light a candle, to look, in fact, to see what was there but the candle revealed nothing but a deep impression in the counterpane next to the impression made between the sheets and where my own body had just been. I tried to lift the bedclothes right off the bed, but from the side where the impression was, I could not shift them. So after many endeavors to account for what seemed unaccountable, I was driven to the conclusion that there really are stranger things in this world than my philosophy could explain. And rather than take my place next to that unseen heavy weight of mystery, I got a book and a cigarette, and did not try to get into bed again until the day broke. Then, having opened the shutters and the windows, I once more went over to the bed, found the impression on the counterpane, if anything, deeper than when I had last looked. But on trying to lift the clothes, I was rejoiced to find that I could do so. The weight was gone, so I was back in my own place, between the sheets, when my cup of tea was brought to me. 
I have had further experiences, such as hearing footsteps, etc., when my eyes told me there was no one visible to make the sounds, and all the time that I have been in LEP have felt that someone was trying to get recognition or communication with me. But to this thought, I have never paid any attention except to chase it out of my mind as quickly as possible and to resolve each time it returned more strongly that I would not be the means if I could avoid it for the unseen inhabitants of your old home to make themselves more troublesome than they do at present by taking messages or encouraging them to attempt communication. I only wish I knew of someone who has studied the unseen enough to be able to come up to Lep and make its invisible occupants go to the rest that they, I suppose, are seeking, which they certainly prevent you and plenty of other living people from getting. In letters to Carol, Millie wrote of being awakened in the middle of the night by groans and hearing something very heavy fall to the floor of the murder hole room adjoining her bedroom. Upon investigation, she found that nothing had fallen from the walls, but upon stepping on a normally dry, dark stain on the old oaken floorboards, the stain was now warm and moist, and that her foot had become stained with blood. She also related to Carol how all of her children had reported seeing the ghosts until they reached the age of four or five. None of them had exhibited any sign of fear, speaking with interest and curiosity of what they saw, she wrote. They usually spoke inquiring as to who were the lovely lady in red, the funny old man in black with such a shiny head, the little man in green clothes with such beautiful shining things on his shoes, all alike, and sometimes two together saw these. In a letter written to St. John D. Seymour for inclusion in his book True Irish Ghost Stories, Millie wrote, When first we went there we heard people talking, but on looking everywhere could find no one. Then, on some nights, we heard fighting in the glen beside the house. We could hear voices raised in anger and the clash of steel. No person would venture there after dusk. One night I was sitting talking with my governess. I got up, said good night, and opened the door, which was on the top of the back staircase. As I did so, I heard someone, a woman, come slowly upstairs walk past us to a window at the end of the landing, and then, with a shriek, fall heavily. As she passed, it was bitterly cold, and I drew back into the room, but did not say anything, as it might frighten the governess. She asked me what was the matter, as I looked so white. Without answering, I pushed her into the room, and then searched the house, but with no results. Another night, I was sleeping with my little girl. I awoke and saw a girl with long, fair hair standing at the fireplace, one hand at her side, the other on the chimney piece. Thinking at first it was my little girl, I felt on the pillow to see if she were gone, but she was fast asleep. 
There was no fire or light of any kind in the room. Some time afterwards, a friend was sleeping there, and she told me that she was pushed out of bed the whole night. Two gentlemen to whom I had mentioned this came over, thinking they would find out the cause. In the morning, when they came down, they asked for a carriage to take them to the next train, but would not tell what they had heard or seen. Another person who came to visit her sister, who was looking after the house before we went in, slept in this room, and in the morning said she must go back that day. She would also give no information. On walking down the corridor, I have heard a door open, a footstep cross before me and go into another room, both doors being closed at the time. An old cook I had told me that when she went into the hall in the morning, a gentleman would come down the front stairs, take a plumed hat off the stand, and vanish through the hall door. This she saw nearly every morning. She also said that a girl often came into her bedroom and put her hand on her, the cook's face, and when she would push her away, she would hear a girl's voice say, Oh, don't, three times. I have often heard voices in the drawing-room which decidedly sounded as if an old gentleman and a girl were talking. Noises like furniture being moved were frequently heard at night, and strangers staying with us have often asked why the servants turned out the rooms underneath them at such an unusual hour. The front doorbell sometimes rang, and I've gone down but found no one. In early 1922, Jonathan found himself at odds with his tenants, which resulted in their refusal to pay their rents and their implementing a boycott against the Darbys. When events escalated to the point that on several occasions shots were fired through the castle windows and their garden was destroyed by persons unknown, in April or May of that year, the Darbys felt compelled to flee from their home and live with their daughter in Longford. We were forced to leave with only a few clothes, leaving all our precious belongings behind us, Millie later confided to a friend. Early on the morning of Sunday, July 30th, 1922, an unidentified group of eleven men broke into the castle and after smashing the furniture into what could be utilized as firewood, they set the castle on fire, destroying both the center and the northern portions of the castle. The next morning, the previously untouched southern part of the castle was also set ablaze as locals looked on and looted whatever could be salvaged from the fire. Having been alerted that something like this might occur, Jonathan had, previous to the fire, made trips to the castle and removed his books and other valuables to a safe house. Millie, however, lost all of her clothing, jewelry, books, and most terrible of all, the manuscripts for over 150 unpublished stories and two unpublished novels, the creative output of 30 years. For despite Jonathan's demand that she never again publish, she had never stopped writing. For decades, 
The castle remained an ominous burned-out ruin, often referred to as the most haunted castle in Ireland. Local lore has it that in the course of an argument with a man concerning the castle ghost stories, Jonathan offered to give the man a thousand pounds if he could endure twelve nighttime hours alone in the castle ruins. It is said that after spending only a little more than an hour in the castle, he fled in terror, refusing to ever disclose what he had encountered. In 1974, Peter Bartlett, an Australian with Irish roots, purchased the ruins and enthusiastically set about restoring both the castle and the gate lodge. Following Bartlett's death in 1989, the castle was bought by the musician Sean Ryan, renowned throughout the world as a virtuoso tin whistle player. Sean continued the restoration of the castle, and he has brought much of the central tower back to its original medieval glory. Sean has spoken of a hooded figure being seen and whispering being heard in what is called the Bloody Chapel, comprising the top floor of the tower, as well as encounters with a phantom lady in Victorian attire, whom Sean believes might be a governess, and two ghostly little girls referred to as Charlotte and Emily. On a recent visit to Lep, Sean told me that from time to time, locals still report seeing an eerie light shining within the bloody chapel when no one is up there. Fortunately, while recent visitors speak at times of experiencing an inexplicable sense of terror and of smelling a foul sulfurous odor, the elemental has not been reported to have been seen in all of its horrific hideousness since the departure of the Dalbys. This is Mark Lyon, inviting you to join me on the first day of every month as we explore more true tales from the Other Realm. The Other Realm is a production of Wind Whistle Theatre. Our music was composed by Dan Heflin. Support for The Other Realm has been provided by HauntedIsles.com, offering private and small group tours of haunted Britain and Ireland, and by Heftone Studios, producers of Phantoms of the Holbrook, a docudrama relating true events occurring at what well may be the most haunted hotel in the entire world, and Natalie a modern retelling of the German legend of the Lorelei, and by Wind Whistle Press, publishers of Jesse Adelaide Middleton's classic trilogy of true tales of the supernatural, The White Ghost Book, The Grey Ghost Book, and its sequel, Another Grey Ghost Book, and Lep Castle, The House of Horrors, by Mildred Darby, and 
San Francisco Ghost by Mark Lyon.